So good afternoon uh, and good evening to our guest, Jonathan Rausch. Uh, welcome to this Free Speech Union Speak Easy event. Uh, my name is David Kuman, and I'm very honoured uh, to have Jonathan Roush with us today and be able to, to talk with him. It's hard to give Jonathan a, an introduction that's fitting to his uh, prestige and his influence, um, but I have it on good authority that he views the highest honorific as being called journalist. Uh, he is, of course, one of those uh, and won numerous awards for his work, including the 2005 US National Magazine Award, uh, a great honour. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington uh, and the author of numerous books. I think he's up to eight um, with his latest that we'll touch on today. Uh, we're very honoured to have you, Jonathan. Thank you for joining us this evening, this afternoon. I'm, I'm happy to be here and Delighted to support the important work that the Free Speech Union is doing. And hello, New Zealand. It's my first appearance of any kind, unfortunately, only on Zoom, but perhaps we'll be able to rectify that. I hope so. Uh, kia ora in our um, native language. Uh, hello to you. One of your um, books that has resonated most strongly uh, with many of us uh, at the Free Speech Union is Kindly Inquisitors. Uh, and you wrote that in 1993. Um, and yet it's still, I think, one of the best defences uh, of free speech. Uh, and unfortunately needed uh, now more than ever. You expand on some of the themes, uh, particularly of liberalism, in your latest book, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge, which, as I said, I hope we, we get to touch on. Um, but let's start at the beginning, Jonathan. Why? Why is free speech so important to you? Well, it has been actually since I was a, a teenager. A couple of things are important to me, and they both go together. One is free speech, which is why we're here. It's been a core value, and I think that goes to the fact that I was born cancelled. I'm a member of three, count them, detested minorities. One is Jewish. One is, or at least historically detested in parts of the world, still very detested. One is Jewish. Second is atheist, and the third is homosexual. And from a young age, I knew in my bones, even if I couldn't articulate it, that I was all of those things, and I would always be an outsider, and that these these freedoms of thought, of conscious to be who I am, were, were always at risk. So that was wired into me. The other thing that I'm equally committed to, which goes hand in hand with free speech, but is often forgotten as a sort of stepchild, is the discipline of fact, which is where we get knowledge. It's not just free speech alone. It's, it's all of the social rules and norms that we have that bind us to be truthful, to be empirical, to try to follow evidence, to try to take arguments seriously, and not just to settle our disputes by you know, killing the people on the other side or canceling them or what have you. And those two things are how we get knowledge. And it has been my belief for my entire career that, that the, the greatest thing, the most important revolutionary, transformative social institution in the history of the planet, bar none, is liberal science, our knowledge-building enterprise, which takes hundreds of millions of people, turns them into a hive mind, searching for each other's errors, creates objective knowledge, and gives us peace instead of war over disagreement. So that's what I'm here to defend. That's Kindly Inquisitors. I'd love to know how you stumbled across it. You know, that, that book, David, was as, as Hume said of his book, it's, it fell stillborn from the press. It went almost completely unnoticed for about 20 years before being, alas, rediscovered as necessary in, in the last few years. Uh, well, I, I, I believe it was a recommendation um, from one of our fellow Free Speech Union members, um, but I also saw it cited, I think, in Nadine Strossen's book, Hate, um, uh, when that was released. And so... Um, I, I picked it up and, and read it, and I have, I have my notes from my Kindle that I went over yesterday, um, and it really is um, a, a brilliant book. I encourage everyone to, um, to have a look. It's the one up over here on my bookshelf. Um, you just described how you see free speech is important for um, peace and security and for um, gaining knowledge. But one of, one of the arguments that's been put forward by many people, um, including in New Zealand by our government, as a reason to restrict speech um, is for peace and harmony, to not, not uh, hurt people, to not harm people with speech that can be harmful. And hate speech laws uh, have been proposed here in New Zealand. And one of the major arguments um, is that it was, it was born out of the terrorist attack that we had in Christchurch and to prevent harm against certain groups uh, in our society. 
don't you see that as um, the kind approach to free speech? Well, I'm sure you anticipated my answer. It's it's roundly no, and it's it's no for a variety of reasons. One is that censorship doesn't work. It actually platforms the ideas that it's trying to get rid of. People think, well, what is it that I'm not supposed to read? You know, that's how Hitler did it. Uh, the Weimar Republic had censorship laws against anti-Semitic and group libel. Uh, and Goebbels and Hitler used that to put posters up all over Germany saying the socialists, the communists are allowed to speak. We're not. What are they trying to hide? Um, so number one, it doesn't work. Number two, it's authoritarian. Whoever you put in charge of, of administering these things is going to be in the democratic system, reflective of majority will, not minority sensibilities. And of course, in an autocratic system. They'll just reflect the desires of the regime. As a historically oppressed minority of three categories, we know perfectly well that there is no one that we can trust with that kind of power. They'll silence us. They did homosexuals for many, many years, all kinds of social ways. Number three, it's, um, it's unhelpful to minorities, especially. We need to know who these people are, who are antagonistic, who have who have terrible ideas. We use that in the gay rights movement in America. Uh, we were able to use their hate speech against us. It empowered us. Every time they were hateful and ignorant, we would hold up an alternative vision, which was loving and fact-based. And, and that's how we won. And I don't think we could have done that in a climate where this debate was, was chilled or shut down. And then, of course, you lose knowledge. And that's also very important to minority rights. You know, people... Most people don't get up every morning and figure out new and new and creative ways to hate. The reason they hate, say, homosexuals is fear and ignorance. Um, and you can't fight that by banning the speech. Their hate speech is, is bad, I agree, but what's bad about it is the hate, not the speech. And just silencing the speech is like dealing with global warming by breaking all the thermometers. We have to go up against it. We have to know where it is. We have to refute it. We have to show the world that there are better answers. That's how we did it. That's why I'm married to a man today. Uh, free speech is all we had, actually. We didn't have money. We didn't have votes. We didn't have power. We were a pariah class. But we were right. We had truthful arguments, and we made them, and we won. And that is our most important weapon. Well, that, that um, certainly makes a lot of sense to me, but I, I wonder if, if you can expand a little bit on that, particularly the gay rights battle um, that you've been involved with, uh, of course. Uh, some of the proponents of the hate speech laws might say that uh, stopping people from uh, speaking ill or, or from harming you psychologically uh, or stirring up hatred against you um, is actually the right way to protect your rights and your values. Uh, why, why is that not the best? And why is it better to, to stand up and argue? And do you have any examples of where it's worked uh, one way or the other? Examples of where it's worked? Boy, do I ever. So again, a few things to say about that. And if you want sort of shorter, more concise answers, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, but the first thing to say about that is Yes, it has worked. My career shows it. But not only, if you don't believe me, ask Frederick Douglass, uh, the, the greatest, uh, one of the greatest thinkers and orators of the 19th century, uh, the greatest framer probably of the civil rights movement, who said that if free speech were allowed in the South, the shackles of slavery would be broken in five years. Um, you can ask John Lewis, great civil rights leader who died just a few years ago, who said, that without freedom of speech, the civil of right, civil rights movement would have been a, a bird without wings. You can ask the women's rights movement um, and gay rights movement. Examples of this work, Frank Kameny, the greatest gay civil rights leader of the 20th century, was fired from his job, government job for being gay. Um, total pariah class, this is 1958. You're unemployable at that point. It's against the law to work for the government to have a security clearance. He's categorized as mentally ill in the psychiatric standards of the day. What does he have? He has his voice, thanks to a Supreme Court decision issued about the same time, which overturned the government's effort to censor a gay magazine in defense of you know, the safety of the public. Kameny refuses to go quietly. He organizes, he protests, he leads the first civil rights marches in front of the 
White House and Independence Hall in Philadelphia in 1965. He runs for Congress. He tirelessly campaigns. He argues to the American Psychiatric Association that we are not sick. He wins these debates. It takes a while, but he wins these debates by force of arguments. Um, by 2010, the year before he died, he was awarded the highest honor um, by the very government agency that had fired him decades before. This is all the power of ideas, the power of speech. That's why authorities always want so hard to shut it down. So then people say, well, doesn't it help protect you to have the government on your side? Well, the first answer is the people it protects are the people actually administering the rules. And those are very rarely the actual affected minorities. They're sometimes people who claim to speak for the minorities, but they're people with power, right? They're the president of the university. They're the interest groups who clamor the loudest to suppress other people's speech. So uh, it's a false notion that somehow these laws will be administered on the behalf of the most beleaguered minorities. The most beleaguered minority in any society is the dissident. And that's precisely who needs these protections the most. And the second thing is, as I said earlier, it, it just doesn't work. Uh, please don't protect us. This is, you know, it's, it's such a condescending view of minorities. If, if you think about it, again, this is the American experience. Don't know how it will resonate with all of you, but think about it. How is it that, that slavery and, the, and Jim Crow were justified in America? It's, it's because Black people, African Americans, are too childlike, too weak to look after themselves. They need protection. They need safety. Women. Why are they second-class citizens? They're the weaker sex, the gentler sex. They can't look after themselves. We're doing them a favor. Homosexuals, think about the way we're characterized. Sissy, limp wrist, pansy. We're weak. Um, we're fragile. The last thing that we should be doing as members of minorities is embracing the myth of weakness and vulnerability. If you have a problem with me, um, if... You have a bias against me. I think you should report it, but not to some human rights, human resources department, and not to some administrator on your campus. Report it to me. I won't melt. We are not weak. We are not fragile. Don't protect us. We don't want your safety. Well, um, what a strong, passionate response. Uh, and, and one of the great reasons that I also believe uh, free speech is so important. Uh, New Zealand has a proud history. Uh, in some of those areas, we we have a, a proud history of of leading women's suffrage. Um, we have a proud history of uh, gay rights in this country. Um, but what it seems like is we're we're sl starting to slowly follow some of the uh, cultural trends of America and uh, Europe, in particular, uh, in terms of the cancel culture, uh, what's happening on campuses uh, in the democratic in the democratic system. Um, and these are these are some of the areas that you've uh, written about uh, a lot. And yet you write that you're an optimist uh, about the future, even though to some of us it seems uh, a little bleak. What, what gives you that hope? Why are you such an optimist? Well, I distinguish between hope and optimism, which are two slightly different things. Optimism assumes things will work out. Hope says they can work out if we fight the fight. So why well, am I hopeful? Um, because, so here's the thing about the case for, for free speech. The idea that speech, which is hurtful, offensive, bigoted, wrong, prejudiced, should not only be allowed, but actively protected by the government is the single most counterintuitive social idea in all of human history, bar none. If someone in this room can think of something more counterintuitive, put it in the chat. But I don't think you can. It's a crazy idea, right? It goes against everything, all of our instincts. It has only one redeeming quality, David, and that's it's also the most single successful social idea in the entire history of the human race. It turns out it allows you to build this marketplace of persuasion and ideas to create liberal science, to advance knowledge. It puts an end to the wars of religion. It allows us to live together and it allows us to be free. But because it's so counterintuitive, it will never 
be self-explanatory. Since day one, it has had enemies, very intelligent, impassioned, and often well-meaning enemies who thought the whole idea was just terrible because it empowered bigotry. It gave a platform to hurtful, wrong-headed views because it damaged minorities, all the things that we hear today. The result of that is that you and I and everyone on this call and your children and their children and their grandchildren will have to get up every morning for the rest of history and explain this principle and defend this principle all over again from scratch. There will never be any rest and there will constantly be new opponents, new arguments. And you know what? We just need to be cheerful about that. That's our mission. If you think about the last 400 years of human history since this idea came on the scene, we've done incredibly well. You know, in, in my grandfather's lifetime, the greatest novel of the 20th century was imported into the United States and burned by government order on the docks. You can't do that now. You can't do anything like it. So the reason I'm hopeful is that if we continue to fight the fight that the free speech union is fighting, I think we do it because we have a better idea. The others, you know, the competitors have nothing to say except, well, why don't you put us in charge and we'll decide what everyone gets to say and it'll be good for you. Not a good plan. Won't sell politically over the long run, but, but we need to do the work. We must never give up. Right. You mentioned the, um, the marketplace of ideas. And I, I, from my starting to read your Constitution of Knowledge book uh, behind me, these are two books I think everyone should read uh, here. Um, but or at least buy. At least buy, yes. Uh, it, it, it seems like that marketplace of ideas on its own is not quite there yet. And I wonder if you can expand on, on particularly the three realms uh, and constructs that you've written about in your book so well. Um, and before you before you jump into that, I'd invite everyone uh, on the chat. If you've got questions, please put them uh, in the Q and A. Please write them up, and we will get to them uh, soon. So, Jonathan. So, the Constitution of Knowledge is my new book. It builds on the ideas of um, kindly inquisitors. I'll, I'll give you the brief sort of the headline summary of both books, and then we can drill down however you want. Um, so, const so. Um, uh, Kindly Inquisitors, although I call it a free speech book, it's really about where knowledge comes from. And it posits that we have a liberal system of making knowledge, which is in many ways similar to capitalism and uh, liberal democracy, which is we have a process, a social process, rather than uh, a series of authorities. We have rules rather than rulers um, that allow us to work out collectively as a group what's true and what's not true. And I call that liberal science. And it's not just, you know, the hard sciences, bench science. It goes all the way out to literary criticism, including journalism. But it's, it's a network of people looking for each other's mistakes. And the input is freedom of speech. And the output, once it goes through this system, is knowledge. What I did not do in that book was look in the black box in the middle. So what does this system actually have to look like? Because it turns out that free speech by itself is not enough. It turns out that humans are wired so that when we're in a social situation, we tend not to look for truth. We tend to instead try to elevate our status by showing off to our friends, by ganging up on someone who we believe is an enemy. You know, We outdo each other to express outrage. Or we chase conspiracy theories and endorse them because they enhance our status with the group. Or we engage in confirmation bias, which is simply that we're more, our brains, cognitively, we're more receptive to, uh, to inputs, including sensory stimulations that are agreeable. So if all you do is put people in an unstructured environment, like, say, Twitter or Facebook, uh, you don't get development of truth. You don't get knowledge. You get cacophony and you get sectarianism and cultism and eventually creed warfare and the situation that we have. So I thought it was awfully important to come back to this subject and say, okay, so you need a lot of so social structure to get this right. Free speech is just the input. If you want the output to be constructive social conversation that's rigorous and develops knowledge, what do you need? And it turns out what you need is very much like the US Constitution. It's a set of rules and norms and institu institutions which incentivize us to state hypotheses in ways that are debatable, to then look at them empirically, 
in ways that are interchangeable, somewhat akin to voting, where people um, interact in interchangeable ways. It needs a lot of institutions, a lot of structures that pit bias against bias in a systematic way, much as in the US Constitution. You have three branches of government and multiple levels of government, which are checking and balancing each other. The US Constitution forces compromise. Constitution of knowledge forces persuasion. You can't do it by force. You can't do it by decree. You're going to have to persuade other people all over the world that you're right, and so on. So this book is about what are the settings, the social settings, the rules that we need to get right in order to turn free speech into objective knowledge, and how do we defend those? And then the second half of the book is about the people attacking those, including cancelers and trolls and, and many others, and how to, how to deal with all of them. Well, there, there certainly are attacks uh, on those systems um, coming from all sorts of angles, um, and you've outlined some of them uh, in in your book. I guess um, uh, to start with, social media uh, plays a, a big role today, um, as well as mainstream journalism. Um, but the amount of disinformation, the the, the self censorship, the algorithms that are driving social media, the clickbait decisions of journalists, um, uh, seems to be taking it away from the title that you see as honorific. Um, and social media seems to be um, confusing things, partly because of its open free market. Uh, regulation seems to be the obvious choice there, doesn't it? Not to me, because no one knows how to regulate. Um, and the wonderful phrase of Yuval Levin, the problem with social media is it doesn't mediate and it isn't very social. <laughs> and that's right. I am not one of the people who blame social media for all of our problems. Um, it's an enabler. It's an accelerant. But the problems that it's that we're seeing, disinformation and trolling and cancel culture and so on, long predate social media. Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States in 1835 and said that the biggest threat to freedom was not the government. It was enforced conformity, uh, socially enforced conformity. John Stuart Mill said the same thing in 1859 in On Liberty. So we've been seeing these things for a long time. The problem is social media, of course, were designed as an advertising vehicle to capture eyeballs and then sell those eyeballs to advertisers. And it turns out the way you capture eyeballs is to deliver a lot of sticky, highly emotional stuff like outrage, conspiracy theories, uh, fake news. It's really fun. The making knowledge Getting knowledge out of the system requires that you slow things down, actually, that you evaluate them, that you send them out to other people, you get expert opinions. Social media is not wired to do any of that. And in fact, studies find that it accelerates uh, fake stuff at a higher rate than truth. A few cycles of that, and you see what happens. What comes out of the gate first, and sometimes only, is the fake stuff. So that's a problem. It's not just a technological problem, but it is going to require uh, figuring out how to change the incentives on a lot of these platforms. Um, good people are working on that. And to me, that's good news. I don't think mostly it's going to be about censorship and saying, you know, David Cumin, we're, we're kicking you off. I don't think that's likely to prove very effective. Um, I think what's, what people are going to have to try to figure out is ways to change the algorithms and change the incentives, change the way these things are used, add friction. Something Twitter is doing now, for example, is if you try to retweet a link that you haven't read, it'll throw up what's called an interstitial warning, which says, uh, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you don't want to read this first? And, and making people pause just a bit can engage our system two brains, our rational minds that make us think, well, is this really such a good idea? Uh, the other thing that's really important is the way we've dealt with these kinds of disruptions in the past. This is not the first. Two of the big ones were the invention of the printing press, the biggest of all, not handled well. That led to 150 years of warfare, much more successful. The invention of offset printing um, and the race to the bottom in American journalism in the 19th century. And we dealt with those by building institutions and norms that became like guardrails, that were able to create a less toxic environment, which people and institutions then opted into. That's what gets us from yellow journalism of the turn of the 20th century to um, Edward R. Murrow 40 years later, the creation of things like standards for journalists, American Society of Newspaper Editors put, put standards, um, 
journalism schools were created to inculcate standards, professionalism, prizes like the Pulitzer, the one I won, the National Magazine Award, incentivize good behavior, lots of incentives throughout the system to change the way we behave. So the question is, can we do something like that for social media? Facebook is trying. They have an oversight board, which is trying to start creating rules and norms and guidelines. We'll see if it works. But unlike a lot of people, I I do not urinate on that, so to speak. Um, I think it's the right direction to move. It's what worked in the past. So can we do this with social media? I don't think we know yet. It is a wicked hard problem. Uh, but the good news is that five years ago, you know, social media titans were saying it's not our problem. It's just a free speech market. Now they understand that this market needs some structure. Yeah, no, it is a wicked hard problem. Um, but it's interesting to hear your thoughts on, on some of the solutions. And certainly kicking people off the platform um, hasn't worked well. Uh, we've seen some um, uh, people move from those platforms to other platforms um, to, to share their hate in less obvious ways um, amongst people uh, in more of an echo chamber. So it, certainly the censorship doesn't work from that perspective um, is what we've seen. Uh, that That's kind of the, the more public sphere, if you like. Um, but I, we, I'm curious on your thoughts on um, the attacks, particularly from within uh, systems where we should or we have historically looked up to experts, um, particularly in the sciences. And I know you've, you've done a lot of thinking and writing about uh, liberal science, as you call it, um, but there have been a series of very concerning, particularly to me as an academic, um, issues on campuses around the world and um, the, the Lindsay Pluckrose um, Bocasian paper, uh, fake papers that they got published uh, has exposed some uh, obvious flaws in the, the system of academia that uh, erodes trust and doesn't help us build knowledge. Uh, how do we fix those holes? How do we plug those gaps? Uh, another big question. Um, and before I get there, I just want to state so that people, if they're interested, they'll know this is in the book and they'll know I think it's important. I argue that there are, are two quite different, methodologically different threats to the constitution of knowledge, but that there are two versions actually of the same thing, which is what's called information warfare which is manipulating the in information environment for political gain, usually to deplatform, disorient, dominate, ultimately demoralize your target population. And one way to do that is mass disinformation along the lines of what Donald Trump and his MAGA movement now have, have done to devastating, devastating effect in the United States. Two-thirds or so of Republicans believe falsely the election was stolen. In other words, that this is no longer a democracy. Uh, we have never seen such an effective, sophisticated campaign of disinformation run against this country. Uh, and this is, I argue, this is the number one problem. Number two is the world that you're talking about. This is the replacement of the spirit of open inquiry in which we punish our hypotheses instead of each other with the spirit of canceling and of ideological enforcement. And unfortunately, a lot of that is emanating from within the heart of what I call the reality-based community, the community that, uh, that lives according to the constitution of knowledge. And that's academia. Um, there, there are four big pillars of the reality-based community, um, journalism, law, government, but the most important is science, research, and academia. And here, as you say, unfortunately, we are seeing um, disciplines and departments and campuses where it is becoming very hazardous to speak out against an orthodox view and where there's insufficient diversity of ideological viewpoint to even support the process of good science, good thinking, which relies on enough different points of view so that you get healthy questioning. Um, in many cases, that's not even happening. The science is suffering. The environment is suffering. People are being chilled. Uh, people are now frightened. Um, about two-thirds of American students now say that they are afraid to state their true political opinions. And by the way, that's not only true on the right. That's also true of many on the left who are frequently the targets of canceling. So yeah, this is a problem. I am not a fan of the prank played by Pluckrose and Lindsay and Bogassian. Uh, I thought it was completely unhelpful. It, it, all it shows is that if you deliberately <clears throat> hoax the system of peer review, you can fool it. We knew that because it's trust-based. 
So that's not helpful. What is helpful is to shore up those mechanisms. And that's going to require doing some things like, number one, we need a much firmer commitment from universities in the US and elsewhere to defend free speech and free thought and intellectual inquiry. And that needs to start at the very top with top leadership. And that means that when there are calls to investigate Dr. Cumin, because he tweeted something someone doesn't like, the answer should be he's exercising his free speech rights. There's nothing to investigate. Absent a clear and specific showing of professional misconduct, did he make you uncomfortable? Well, tough. University of Chicago did that to great effect recently. Most places do not. Second, we need to start getting serious about um, reducing viewpoint discrimination which we now know there are new studies out of the UK and the US, viewpoint discrimination is rampant. And the result of that is conservative, libertarian, centrist viewpoints are often unwelcome. Well, we need to start taking viewpoint discrimination in academia as seriously as we take other forms of discrimination and taking viewpoint diversity as seriously as we take other forms of diversity. That's a long-term project, right? You can't flip a switch and change your recruiting patterns. But over 10 or 20 years, if you make academia welcoming to people with multiple kinds of political views, you can begin to remedy this problem and create a much more hospitable environment. Um, third, you need to start changing the culture of the place. You need to start going, being less tolerant of cancelers. And that means, as I tell people in the last chapter of my book, unmute yourself. These people don't have that much real power. They can get you investigated, but if you counter-organize and counter-mobilize on campus, and if you have the courage of your convictions and do not allow yourself to be silenced, in many cases, you could prevail. Now, that's a hard thing to do, but remember, these are typically minorities in terms of numerical minorities that are really the hardcore that are going after people, silencing them, shutting them down, destroying their reputations, filing complaints, demanding investigations and firings. They're not representative of the larger community. So if you can begin to counter-organize against them, you can begin to create a nub of opposition to them. And that's very important. That can begin to change the dynamics. As Robert George has said, paraphrasing, but something like this, you don't need 500 professors to change the culture of a campus. You only need five. So well, those are like some things that need to happen. I'm sorry about the excessively long answer. Not at all. It's, it's fascinating and, and um, inspiring, actually. And it's part of what I hope um, and I know that the Free Speech Union is working towards to help support and bolster uh, those voices, not only in academia, but in other places. Uh, one of the, the great difficulties that we have here in New Zealand is, um, um, before I go back to the bigger threat that you've identified, uh, one of, one of the, the difficulties that we have is, is that it, it is coming from the top. Um, the vice chancellors of some of our universities have um, supported the cancelling of uh, some speakers on campus and have openly uh, uh, condemned some academics for um, certain views that they've held. And so um, it might be a minority, but it, it, at least in some of our universities, it's a minority in the positions of power. Uh, and so uh, yes. I wonder if you have um, they, some they ideas have on a how lot we of, might better. <clears throat> they have a lot of institutional clout and there it's important to counter-organize and uh, that's starting to happen in the US. There's a group called Heterodox Academy which is a group of academics, quite ecumenical, actually. There are as many progressives as there are conservatives who are organizing on behalf of a viewpoint diversity and, um, and starting to, to try to incentivize that. We have the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which is a group that's mobilized for free speech on campus and has been effective in overturning some speech codes. The new Academic Freedom Alliance which describes itself as a kind of NATO for professors to mobilize against threats to academic freedom, uh, wherever they come from. So we're gradually seeing these responses. There's others, there's Princetonians for free speech, other alumni groups seem to be springing up. So this counter-organizing can help. And, and you guys are part of that. That's why the free speech union is, is so important. If only one side is organized, and if only one side is putting pressure on the college administration or the employers, um, and if only one side is really moving to institutionalize itself and capture and dominate these institutions, then they win automatically. The key has to be counterforce to begin making the argument against them, 
mobilizing against them, putting heat on the administrators, and ultimately moving into these institutions and creating other forms of representation. And that's really, that's your job. That's your, that's your mission. Uh, believe me, it, it can matter. It can make a decisive impact in particular institutions once that work begins to get done. Well, I also think it's important. It's why uh, why I'm part of the union and uh, our members equally so. And thank you for your, your inspiration and the examples. Um, we have used FIRE as a bit of a, um, a reference and a template for some of the work that we're undertaking. Um, and I'll follow up with some of the other groups that you mentioned, um, because I think there's there's a lot to be gained from sharing our collective knowledge and experience um, in, in these battles that we're all fighting. Um, I want to go back to what you identified as, as the bigger threat before I take uh, questions from our members, and I invite all of our members to um, submit their questions through the Q&A or the chat on Zoom, um, and we'll get to them. But uh, the bigger threat you identified was the disinformation um, and the campaigns, um, and you identified Trump as one of the, the key players in that. Um, we get uh, a moderate number of complaints uh, about perceived or real conservative viewpoints um, being deplatformed from Facebook or Twitter or social media. Uh, how do we balance that um, uh, with your, your fear, especially now that um, social media is really the public square, the new public square? Um, I don't think it's it's just a new printing press. Um, it seems to be a bit bigger than that. It's, it's where the soapbox is placed uh, metaphorically for people to get up on. Well, that's why it's a wicked hard problem, right? There's There's no... There's no simple way to sort of draw a line and say what goes and what doesn't. Can social media do nothing at all to regulate its epistemic environment? Turns out the answer is no, because you get a race to the bottom and a place that's toxic where audiences don't want to be. Like, and I don't know if this will resonate in New Zealand, but, you know, vote on November 4th is not something they're going to allow when the election is on November 3rd, right? If they're going to find ways to counter that. Uh, some of the health disinformation can can be deadly, and these these firms, private companies, of course, understand that being epistemically deadly and dangerous is a bad business model. That's why newspapers reform. On the other hand, it's hard to regulate this without people complaining about it and without going overboard. If you look at the, the facts, the studies actually find that if anything, Facebook bends over backwards uh, to host conservative viewpoints. It is not true that conservatives are being suppressed. They're just very good at working the referees. I think the answer is going to have to be, again, changing the way these, these platforms function in terms of the algorithms and the incentives and the social dynamics to encourage better behavior. Uh, and it's going to be things like downranking if something is known false, um, forming alliances with fact checkers, which is already happening so that you can use it to promote and demote, not necessarily censor and kick stuff off and kick people off. But it turns out if you just move something to the second page of someone's feed instead of the first, that will significantly slow it down. So it's, but it's, it's going to be different for different companies and institutions. I don't think in the US regulators have a clue how to deal with it. And that actually, I'm not sure that they will. I'm not sure it's within their power to figure this out. I think it's going to have to be done within these institutions over time. And yeah, it's it's wicked hard. I wish I could just tell you, well, I know how to do it. Just, you know, get rid of anonymity and we solve it. Well, no, that, probably not. That doesn't seem to work either. Um, and and even, even the fact checking has, has run into a bunch of problems um, with, you know, who decides what is and isn't fact. And, and the facts, particularly, I'm thinking around uh, the COVID um, situation uh, have been changing uh, rapidly. Um, sometimes one thing is, is good and they're not good. And, um, you know, all sorts of theories have been changing, uh, have been true and then false. So um, it is wicked hard, but, but perhaps on balance, uh, getting that system in place and, and refining it over time might be uh, the best way around it because I certainly am um, deeply afraid of uh, government intervention uh, or a single source of truth deciding for us what we can and can't say uh, in these powerful forums. Yeah, that right. model is pretty much proven to fail. Oh, and, and yet, and yet, there's still uh, a want from uh, many people to go down that track, uh, which is why your work is so important, Jonathan, um, is to continually do, remind do you, us of the reasons. Do you have calls in New Zealand for out-and-out out government censorship of social media? Uh, I don't think there's um, anything to that degree um, 
with with any great support. Um, but there's a lot of discussion about uh, regulation of social media. Um, more importantly, though, is is the hate speech legislation that's being proposed, um, and that is the government deciding that um, there should be uh, jail sentences for people who uh, speak words that are harmful, uh, and that is a great prison concern. sentences up to three years in jail. Do they want to list the words? Will there be sort of a, a registry of, of verboten words? Well, one, one of the, uh, the arguments that we've advanced strongly and, and asked our supporters to put forward as well in the debate is, of course, uh, what is hate um, and who decides? And interestingly, on that point, um, our uh, Minister of Justice, who is responsible for the bill, was asked by a journalist uh, a series of questions about specific incidents and whether or not it would be captured. Um, and you, you'd believe this, Jonathan, he couldn't answer uh, clearly or no, shocking. whether or not. I, I know, right? Um, and and that and that just underscores the um, the real issue uh, with the hate speech laws at its base level. Yeah, um, we've yeah. It, it breaks my heart that minorities, who are invariably, especially dissident groups, are invariably the first targets of these laws when they're administered by authorities or governments. That that they would so often endorse them, imagining that somehow we, the members of the minority group, will be wielding these powers. We know from history that we never wield these powers. Uh, they're used politically, they're used by majorities, they're used by authorities. This, this won't help us. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to hear that. Hate speech is speech that someone hates, right? I remind people that if hate speech laws had been allowed in the United States in the time when I was coming up as a young homosexual and then getting involved in gay rights activism, we were the haters, right? We hated society. We were subverting it. We were bringing God's wrath down on America. We were seducing children. We were toxic and dangerous and intolerable. And of course, we would have been the targets of these laws. Precisely. And and I, I invite people to go back and re-listen to your passionate argument before as well of how you used your free speech. Um, to to overturn some of the, the orthodoxy that was in place and to convince people that all of those things that you just described were were nonsense um, and and now there is gay marriage um, so it's it, it cuts both ways uh, I think um, unfortunately for those who are trying to push it the other way uh, we're going to open it up to to some of our members um, and um, we will for the the recording of this uh, when it gets played back we will take your um, face and name out so we can respect people's privacy. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it was very inspirational to hear you. I thought you put a very powerful defence that of the idea that free speech is necessary in order to pr protect and pursue the truth. But some of those who advocate controls on speech are also quite equivocal about the concept of truth and objective knowledge, um, seeing you know, truth as a sort of construct maintained by the powerful. Um, with that in mind, is, is, I mean, do you think that is coincidental that there's been a questioning of the validity of the idea of truth at the same time that people are calling for controls on speech? And is it something we should ignore or should we deal with that frontally? Well, thank you. It's it's such an important point and dealt with extensively in, in both of both of my books. So there's a difference, of course, between truth. And, yeah, thanks, David. There's a difference between truth and knowledge. Truth is an aspiration. In liberal science, we can never say with 100% certainty that we've finally and fully established truth. What we can say is that we've rejected error. But on any given day, when a proposition has survived years of checking by many different kinds of people um, and institutions, we call it objective knowledge. And yeah, objective knowledge exists. It's the greatest creation of the human species. It put the vaccine in my arm. It's protecting me right now. You can go to a library and look at it and you can drop it on, on your foot and it will hurt you. So... There's no question but that objective knowledge exists, and there's no question but that there's really only one human social system that has reliably produced it over time, and that's the constitution of knowledge, liberal science, this process that we've been discussing. The others break into sects and tribes and basically go to war or establish priests or oracles. So a key thing to the, quest, to the point you make 
is that, yeah, we need to be a lot more self-confident about defending the importance of objective knowledge and defending our system as the only one that's capable of making it. A move that I make in both my books, especially kindly inquisitors that surprises people and, and discomfits those who are believers in kind of the foundational ideas of truth, that reality has to be based on, on a complete grasp of some truth of some external world that we know, is I don't do that. In fact, I think that, that the, um, the critics who for years have been saying, you know, it's, it's all, all of the systems that we rely on to make knowledge are political and have political implications. I think they're right about that. They are political. But that's only the beginning of the conversation because the politics of these systems are not the same. And the ones that, for example, left-wing advocates advocate on campus are basically authoritarian because they envision some groups saying, here's what you can say, here's what you cannot say, here's what you can believe, here's what you cannot believe. Um, they've gone so far in, in some places to, to say there should be a review committee at a university which vets every piece of scholarship for whether it's anti-racist. And if it's not, it'll be rejected. Well, these authoritarian systems don't work, I argue. There's only one political system that does work and it's the constitution of knowledge. No one in particular is in charge of it. It forces debate and discussion, it forces rigor, it forces empiricism, it forces persuasion, and it creates knowledge. So I think we need to be, to borrow a phrase, out and proud about, yes, our system is political. Yes, it's the only one that works. And if it's rejected or eroded, there will not be anything that replaces it. Um, so a great deal depends on you and me and all of us defending the constitution of knowledge. Uh, if I can um, potentially drill down a little bit deeper in that, Jonathan, and, and tease out some of maybe what Natasha was also trying to get at is the, it seems to me like the, the chaos and disinformation on the one hand and the censorship on the other um, are both attempts to um, in different ways, control the system. One is to create chaos and, and um, see doubt to take control. And the other is to take it more by force. And so it seems to me like um, uh, there is no, no coincidence in, in the same people that are trying to the systems um, taking those steps um, and and, and mm, attacking yes. the foundations of the systems of knowledge, um, and and your your books, particularly your latest book, is is really uh, a call to arms in a way to to stand up and as you say, be out, be proud, uh, and defend it um, against both of those. And understand is, is that how you see it. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, chaos and coercion are different tactics, but with basically the same goal, which is to to erode um, or, in fact, collapse the constitution of knowledge, the system that we've been talking about, and replace it with one version or another of demagoguery, authoritarianism, central control, um, sheer nihilism in some cases. And that's how we need to understand it. So step one, maybe the most important step and message that I hope everyone on this call will take away is we need to understand that there is a constitution of knowledge. The marketplace of ideas is a great metaphor, and I love it, and I use it, but it is not enough. Just free speech by itself doesn't get us there. You also need all of these structures and institutions that we rely on to keep us rigorous, to be our best selves in debate, to force us to subject our views to the contrary views of others. That's the constitution of knowledge. We have to defend that too. And that's a lot of protocols and a lot of disciplines and a lot of rigor. That's what someone like Dr. David Kuhlman spends all those years in college and graduate school learning to do and then teaching students to do. So we need to defend all of that. I say there, there are really three things that you need to make this work. One is freedom of speech. The second is discipline of fact, all those rules and norms that tether us to to the constitution of knowledge. And number three is diversity of viewpoint. And what we see from all of these attackers are attacks on different aspects of, of all of those things, attacking diversity of viewpoint on campus, attacking free speech on and off campus, and attacking the discipline of fact by simply swamping fact with lies, conspiracy theories, half-truths at such a rate that media and ordinary people no longer can keep up, no longer believe anything, become cynical, disoriented. So that's, I think, the, the way we need to understand the situation. 
Um, Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Free Speech Union, for putting on this uh, this session. Um, just a preamble. I mean, I think our journey to this kind of current point in the debate around free speech for some of us has been, um, well, for all of us, is slightly different. I mean, my my ideas have probably been shaped more by people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn and the uh, and the folks coming out of totalitarianism under the USSR. Um, rather than perhaps some of the other um, strands that you've mentioned. I've got some good um, reading ahead of me, that's for sure. Um, my, my question is a little bit contextual to what's going on here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but hopefully um, make, we'll, we'll, we'll have some resonance for you, Jonathan. Um, and, and it's around the... the um, the cancellation of uh, of culture, really, the the constraint in speech, um, by means of uh, the argument that your your point of view and your argument and your theorising is by nature um, colonialist and racist, um, and you you know it's it's been it's been derived from a, a, a context of oppressive structuring of society and masking of the truth, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore, your ideas, your your arguments have little to no validity. Just shut up, sit down, and, and make way for the brave new new world of things. Um, that That's something we're facing. We've had a, a few situations here in New Zealand around that. There's one, you know, which is pretty topical around um, sort of indigenous views of knowledge and science and the kind of Western canon, I suppose, of, of science. Um, and the silencing of some people that dared sort of um, speak in, in favour of the latter. So, yeah, just interested in your views around that, Jonathan. Thanks. Well, thank you. As you can imagine, I am not a fan of any of the many versions of arguments that go back for many, many years that attempt to disqualify people or entire classes of people from participating in the search for truth. Uh, those are anti-pluralist. They're basically ways to shut groups and viewpoints out. Science can't function that way. Debate can't function that way. These are really just power grabs. There's nothing new about them. In Kindly Inquisitors, which is now 28 years old, you'll find a chapter on what I call the egalitarian threat. And that's the notion that... Uh, all opinions are created equal, but the opinions of certain groups, especially traditionally beleaguered minorities, are created more equal than others. And so they should have special standing and sometimes, say, white males should, should shut up. Well, the great innovation, one of the great innovations of liberal science, is that everyone is, can participate to the extent that they earn the qualifications and competence to do that. And in fact, the distinction that, that's made liberal science so successful is it can organize and mobilize millions and millions of minds all over the world to focus on problems with extraordinary rapidity and no central control. If you, if you think about the fact that, for example, the, the coronavirus was sequenced over a period of days in China, then confirmed in Europe, then vaccines were designed over two days by multiple institutions, or I think a weekend, in multiple places. This is a phenomenon of social organization, and it all rests on the fact that anyone who follows the rules can participate. No one asks, you know, when you sequence the genome, so what color are you? What's your background? So the great innovation here is the interchangeability of persons. Now, do we always get that right in practice? No. We're homosexuals, for example, excluded for far too long in the research that involved our lives? Of course. The answer to that, of course, is to do the science better, um, to do a better job of including more. The kinds of views that you're talking about are all about disinclusion. They're all about one group exerting power over another. They are fundamentally anti-pluralist and fundamentally anti-scientific. My advice to people, I, the, the single most common question I get on university campuses in the U.S. is from a student, very frequently a freshman or sophomore, uh, usually white male, not always. Uh, some have been gay. Some have been people of color who said, you know, I try to participate in conversations and I'm told, check my privilege. You know, I'm too privileged to participate. My view doesn't matter. My life experience is wrong. What should I say? And after flailing around for a long time, I realized that the answer 
that I, the right answer is it's, it's not what you say, it's that you say. Do not leave that conversation. Do not be intimidated. There's a reason they don't want to hear what you have to say. They're afraid they might be wrong. So firmly, politely, civilly, kindly, if you can, but with determination, participate. Do not allow yourself to be muted. Uh, another inspiring call, Jonathan. Um, uh, we have uh, two more questions uh, here. Uh, one I'll read out. Um, assuming the hate speech promoters triumph, this is for our legislation, um, because in New Zealand they have the political power. Uh, is there any point in trying to limit the draft legislation, for instance, that it should only have effect if the speech is intentionally there to promote physical violence? Or do you think opposition is better to be absolute and oppose any watering down of free speech? I guess this is a the pragmatic versus the yeah, theoretical. It's, it's a bit more of a tactical question, and I'm, I'm not there and don't know enough to to give a, a credentialed, a qualified, a well-qualified response. Um, I can only say that at least in the United States context, which is the one that I know best, but also in European context, yeah, it is very important to limit these doctrines. Um, and in the US, we do that. There are exceptions to free speech in the United States. They're just carefully defined and limited. But for example, the incitement to, the intentional incitement to imminent violence is illegal. Now, it doesn't just say incitement to violence. It says intentional and imminent. That's very hard to prove. It's very few and rare cases. If you left those two words out, it could be just my saying, you know, Dr. Cumin, I think you should take a long walk on a, off a short pier, right? So yeah, I think it's actually very important to try to draft these things if they're going to exist as carefully and as narrowly and as specifically as possible. Uh, very good, very good. And the uh, the last question that we have uh, for you is, uh, Pew and Internet New Zealand show a high volume of active users on social media, in particular Twitter, um, are a minority of the internet users and the population in general. Uh, so it's the 80-20 Pareto principle at play. Uh, yet their messages and opinions are given weight beyond their worth by the mainstream media and other commentators. Um, I guess this is a problem in journalism um, per se, but how, how do you see us establishing or restoring a more balanced perspective in journalism? You know, I think that might be starting to happen. Call me Pollyanna, but one of the things that we've seen in America over the past year or two is it's becoming more and more clear to more and more people, including journalism, that Twitter is an echo chamber of a really quite privileged minority. It skews very left, it skews very woke. Um, and whenever you put these ideas up to a vote, for instance, in the New York mayoral race, for example, or for that matter, in the 2020 presidential election, these extreme woke Twitterverse ideas lose. Um, the winner of the New York mayoral election, who was an African-American former police officer, relative moderate, pro-law enforcement, people thought he couldn't win because everyone's so far left. One of his slogans was, I'm interested in social security, not social media. Social security is our national pension system. In other words, I'm not paying attention to Twitter. I'm paying attention to you. Journalists are also increasingly aware that they are in an echo chamber on Twitter, that they're being driven by it, that they're cover base basing coverage, coverage on it. I am not sure yet if this heightened awareness will lead to changes in behavior, but it's certainly a first step. And I think, in fact, the very fact that you asked that question is a sign that people are waking up to the fact that the Twitterverse is not the real world and we must not mistake it for the real world. And if we journalists do, then we're not doing our jobs. Well, I, a constant reminder for some is needed that Twitter is not the real world. Um, and um, with such glaring examples as uh, the election results, uh, it, it's easy to be jolted out of that false reality. Um, and I hope that journalists pay attention to that as well and don't give so much credence to some of uh, what's written there. But I think if everyone follows um, the advice that you give and the rules that you're defending um, in both of your books, and again, I encourage people, Kindly Inquisitors and the Constitution of Knowledge uh, are fantastic, vital reading, I think. Um, uh, and it's a testament, Jonathan, to, to your wisdom, um, your expertise, and, and also your eloquence. 
um, that uh, particularly kind of inquisitors still stands up as as such a text um, written so long ago. Um, and I'm sure the Constitution of Knowledge will also be uh, one of those. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you to all of the members of the Free Speech Union um, for this. It will go up uh, online for people that aren't members to be able to watch as well. Uh, we greatly appreciate your time, Jonathan, uh, that you spent with us. Thank you very much. It's 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 a privilege. And in case I haven't already made this clear enough, everyone on this call and everyone who's involved and committed to the Free Speech Union is important. The advocates of freedom of speech and discipline of fact have always been a social minority. Um, they have always been outgunned in terms of numbers, and they have always been advancing a very counterintuitive and strange idea. Yet somehow people like you and people like me, using our voices and using our better arguments, have managed to carve out over time increasingly large spaces for freedom of speech. And that's because of people like you. And we win this fight if folks like you stay in it, stay moralized, stay involved, stay passionate. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Ka kite anō.